السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله نحمده ونشكره ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له ونشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا أما بعد فاعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد Respects and listeners A few weeks ago I spoke in detail about the Hijrah. We are now approaching the end of the first lunar month, first Islamic month of the new Islamic year, Muharram of the 1434th year of Hijrah. And because of its relevance, a few weeks ago I spoke on the Hijrah, the emigration from Mecca to Medina, its significance and great position in Islam, so great in fact that the Islamic calendar has been dated from the Hijrah. It was a very sacred journey and a watershed. One of the famous hadith about the hijrah is actually to do with the sincerity of intention and having spoken about the hijrah and realized what a great act of worship and deed it was we may be able to better relate to the hadith which speaks about the hijrah and sincerity of intention. So hopefully today I'll share a few thoughts about the main topic of the sincerity of intention. Sincerity of intention is actually the foundation of a person's faith and deeds. Without sincerity no matter how apparently beautiful and appealing and acceptable a person's deeds may be, that deed would be totally unacceptable to Allah. Time and time again, I've spoken about shirk. On various occasions, based on the hadith or the verse of the Qur'an, we did the tafsir of Surah Al-Ikhlas a few months ago 
قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدَ اللَّهُ السَّمَدُ Till the end. And one of the names of the surah is Surah Al-Ikhlas. And the very meaning of Ikhlas is to make pure, exclusive and sincere. And that means making one's whole religion sincere, pure and exclusive for the sake of Allah. Exclusive to Allah. In fact, uh, last week when we did the tafsir of Surah, uh, surah Al-Kawthar, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, That indeed we have bestowed abundant good on you. We have granted you abundant good. And therefore, in gratitude, Therefore pray for your Lord, and sacrifice for your Lord. Meaning prayer was something which the pagans did anyway. Sacrifice was something which they did. But Allah says, pray. And the Prophet's prayer, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, was different in posture, in movement, in appearance. And he sacrificed. And at least, apparently, the sacrifice was very similar to what the pagans did, because since it didn't involve a certain posture or movement, but rather it just meant the slaughtering and sacrificing of an animal. But what differed was its dedication. The So apparently it may have been similar, but the key difference in both the prayer and the sacrifice of the Prophet ﷺ, to which he was being instructed in this verse, was that he was to make his prayer, his sacrifice, his worship, exclusive to Allah. As a result, and I mentioned last week that this is related to the sincerity of intention, and I said I I would be discussing it today. So, sincerity of intention is actually a foundation on which a great deal of a person's religion, his faith, his deeds, rest. And this is why one of the most famous hadith about the sincerity of intention is to do with hijrah. And many ulama have started their books of hadith with this particular hadith. Even Imam Bukhari, whose famous collection of hadith is widely regarded by Sunni Muslims as being the most authentic book after the book of Allah, after the Holy Qur'an. And he has approximately 7,000 hadith. Many of them are repeated, but in total approximately 7,000 hadith. And yet, out of those 7,000 hadith, the first hadith which he chooses also to begin his book is the hadith of sincerity of intention and the hijrah. In fact, rather, uh, well, quite uniquely, the most important book to Sunni Muslims after the Holy Qur'an is Sahih al-Bukhari. And it's regarded as the most authentic collection of the Prophet's sayings, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And it's, it's, an, it's an extensive and exhaustive book. It's quite, la- quite a large collection of hadith. And yet, Bukhari doesn't begin his book with any introduction. Bukhari has no introduction to his book. None whatsoever. 
his book begins with the words Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim Kitabu Badil Wahi in the name of Allah the most gracious, the most merciful, or by the name of Allah the most gracious, most merciful. Kitabu Badil Wahi, the book of the beginning of revelation. And then the first hadith which he mentions in the first book of the beginning of revelation apparently has got nothing to do with revelation. But it's actually the hadith of hijrah and the sincerity of intention. And as a result, some ulama and commentators have mentioned that Bukhari has no introduction to his huge work. Because this hadith itself serves as an introduction to his book. And what is that hadith? Well, the hadith is very authentic. It's related by many authors. And Imam Bukhari, rahmatullahi alayhi, relates from... He, he relates this hadith a number of times in his book. But I'll mention the most comprehensive narration... Uh, of this hadith in Bukhari, and with a continuous chain from me, till Imam Bukhari, rahmatullahi I relate that Imam Bukhari said, حَدَّثْنَا عَبْدُ اللَّهِ بْنُ مَسْلَمَةِ قَالَ حَدَّثْنَا مَالِكُمْ أَنْ يَحْيِ بْنَ سَعِيدٍ أَنْ مُحَمَّدِ بْنِ إِبْرَاهِيمِ أَنْ عَلْقَمَةِ بْنَ وَقَّاسِ أَنْ عُمَرَ بْنَ الْخَطَّابِ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهِ قَالَ سَمِعْتُ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ يَقُولُ إِنَّمَا الْأَعْمَالُ بِالنِّيَّةِ وَإِنَّمَا لِمْرِئٍ مَا نَوَى فَمَنْ كَانَتْ هِجْرَتُهُ إِلَى اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ فَهِجْرَتُهُ إِلَى اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ وَمَنْ كَانَتْ هِجْرَتُهُ إِلَى دُنْيَا يُصِيبُهَا أَوْ إِمْرَأَةٍ يَتَزَوَّجُهَا فَهِجْرَتُهُ إِلَى مَا هَاجَرَ إِلَيْهِ أَوْ كَمَا قَالَ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ So Imam Bukhari rahmatullahi relates that our teacher Abdullah ibn Maslamah related to us from Imam Malik ibn Anas, who relates from Yahya ibn Sa'id al-Ansari, who relates from Muhammad ibn Ibrahim al-Taymi, who relates from Alqamat ibn Waqqas, who relates from Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu anhu said, I heard the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam say, إِنَّمَا الْأَعْمَالُ بِالنِّيَةِ Deeds are only by intention. وَإِنَّمَا لِمْرِئٍ مَا نَوَى And a man only has what he has intended. فَمَنْ كَانَتْ هِجْرَتُهُ إِلَى اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ So whoever's hijrah, is to Allah and his messenger, فَهِجْرَتُهُ إِلَى اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ Then his hijrah is indeed to Allah and his messenger. وَمَنْ كَانَتْ هِجْرَتُهُ إِلَى دُنْيَا يُصِيبُهَا And if, and one whose hijrah is to the world which he wishes to acquire, أو إِلَى مْرَأَةٍ يَتَزَوَّجُهَا Or to a woman that he seeks to marry, فَهِجْرَتُهُ إِلَى مَا هَاجَرَ إِلَيْهِ Then his hijrah is indeed to whatever he has emigrated to. So this is the hadith, and it's known as the hadith of sincerity of intention in the context of hijrah. And as I said, it's one of the founding, it's one of the foundations of religion. This particular hadith, many authors have started their works with this hadith. And Imam Bukhari, rahmatullahi alayhi, has no introduction to his book. His book begins with the words, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, the book of the beginning of revelation. And then these are the first words which he relates. Uh, this hadith, although the chain is slightly different here at the beginning of the book than it is elsewhere. In any case, he begins the, his book with this hadith, and so do many other authors. Imam 
Abdul Rahman ibn Mahdi rahmatullahi alayhi, one of the greatest scholars and imams of hadith, he actually said that if I was to compile a book of hadith based on the different aspects of religion, the different chapters of religion, categories of religion, along with the prophetic hadith related to each particular category, I would include this hadith in every single chapter. Not just at the beginning of the book, but in every single chapter, I would repeatedly include the hadith of Hijrah. It's famously known as the hadith of Umar ibn al-Khattab. Imam Shafi'i says that this hadith of Sayyidina Umar about Hijrah and the sincerity of intention constitutes one-third of Islam. One whole third. And Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, again another famous Imam, he say, and one of the students of Imam Shafi'i, but the teacher of Imam Bukhari, he says that Islam is founded on four hadith. And in one narration he says three hadith. And this is the first, he mentions this as a first hadith. So, again, Imam Ahmad bin Hanbal says, the foundation of Islam rests on three famous hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, and he mentions this one. And Imam Ahmad bin Hanbal's student, another famous author of hadith, Imam Abu Dawood, who compiled the Sunan of Abu Dawood, he quite famously said that I have studied and scrutinized the reported sayings of the Prophet <clears throat> As a result, I have analyzed and studied and scrutinized 500,000 reported sayings of the Prophet I've mentioned before that when the ulama of hadith speak about many, many scores of thousands of narrations or hundreds of thousands of narrations, we aren't actually talking about the body and the text of the hadith that are different because in reality in total if you were to collect the actual reports without the tra- chains of transmission then without repetition the core content and the core text of the different hadith only come up to a total of approximately 45,000 anyway but when we speak about about approximately 5,000, uh, this includes the uh, authentic, reliable, uh, acceptable, uh, doubtful, unreliable, weak, and even the fabricated narrations. So they only number a couple of thousand. So when scholars speak about scores of thousands of hadith, or 100, 200, 300, 400, 5,000 uh, 500,000 hadith, then what they are speaking of is not the core body and text of different hadith, because they, under no circumstances, come up to this number anyway. What they speak about is any one body and text of hadith with a particular chain of narration. So even if it's the same hadith, but with a different chain of narration, then they regard each hadith with its singular chain of narration to be a different hadith. And in this way, 
we have, let's say, approximately 5,000 hadith, each multiplied a number of times based on the many different chains of narration. And therefore, we come to the number of scores of thousands or a uh, hundred, two hundred, three hundred, or a couple of hundred thousand. So it's in that context that Imam Abu Dawood says that I have analyzed and studied and scrutinized the prophetic sayings uh, of the prophet, uh, the prophetic hadith. And as a result, I have studied and looked into 500,000 hadith. And of these 500,000 hadith, I have selected 4,800 hadith for my collection, for my book. And out of these 4,800, I have discovered that only four hadith are sufficient for a man's religion. And the first of those four hadith is the hadith of Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu anhu that deeds are only by intention and a, a man only has what he intended. So this hadith in, of sincerity of intention in the context of hijrah has served as the foundation of religion in the view of many scholars. It serves as an introductory hadith and the beginning hadith of many of their works. And it's highly regarded, both in terms of its reliability and authenticity, and also because of its meaning. So let's have a look at the hadith. What does the hadith actually say? Prophet ﷺ says, Deeds are only by intention. Which means that the acceptance of deeds by Allah, the acceptability of deeds and good works to Allah is determined only by intention, nothing else. A person's appearance, wealth, social position, standing, ethnicity, background, colour, Nothing about the person matters when it comes to faith and the deeds of religion. The only thing that matters, the only single determining factor for the acceptability or unacceptability of a person's faith and deeds is only intention. And all deeds are determined by intention. Prophet ﷺ continues, And indeed, a man only has what he intended. Which means that a person will only enjoy the reward of any deed which corresponds to that person's sincerity of intention in that deed. And Ultimately, a person will only get what he has intended, which is very simple. If a person does something for the sake of Allah, he will find Allah. If a person does something for the sake of the world, then he will enjoy the reward of the world. As Allah says in a verse of the Quran, "Man kan yurid harth al-akhirat, fi harth." وَمَنْ كَانَ يُرِيدُ حَرْثَ الدُّنْيَا نُؤْتِهِ مِنْهَا 
Whoever seeks the tilth, the tillage, the farm of the hereafter, we shall increase his tillage, his tilth, his farm of the hereafter. And whoever seeks the farm or the tilth of the world, we shall give him of it. But there will not be for him any share in the hereafter. No share whatsoever. In another verse, Allah says, whoever seeks the ajila, the verse is actually man kan yuridu al-ajila, ajjalna lahu fiha ma nasha'u liman nurid. That whoever seeks the ajila, the words correspond, it's difficult to translate this into English without reproducing the dramatic effect and the synchrony of the words chosen in the Qur'an to describe the worldly life and the hastening of reward. So if I was to translate it literally, it would be translated thus. Man kan yuridul ajla, whoever seeks the hasty one, we will hasten for him, for whomever we wish, what we wish. Which means that Allah describes the dunya as ajila. And the meaning of ajila is something which swiftly and hastily moves past. Something which comes and goes. Something which appears and then disappears. Such a thing which appears and disappears hastily, quickly, rapidly, is also known as ajila, the quick one, the hasty one. So Allah describes the dunya and the worldly life, not with the words dunya or al-hayat al-dunya. He actually uses the word ajila to describe the worldly life, i.e. the hasty one or the hastened one. And then immediately thereafter, with the synchrony of the verb, using a verb of the same word of the same stem, Allah says, Ajanna. So whoever seeks ajila, the worldly life, the quick life, the hasty life, Ajanna, we will hasten for him his reward therein. Then in the next verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, But whoever seeks the hereafter, and who works and strives for the hereafter, whilst being a believer, then these are the ones whose efforts and whose striving will be rewarded and appreciated and recognized. So this is the meaning of what the Prophet ﷺ says in the hadith, وَإِنَّمَا لِمْرِئِ مَّا نَوَى That in, indeed a man will only get what he intended. So at the time of making the intention, at the time of beginning to do something, 
Whatever intention lurked in a person's heart and mind, ultimately that is what they will get. If they worked for the world, they will get the reward of the world. If they worked for the hereafter, then that's a reward that they will get. So, if a person wanted fame, they will get fame. Whatever portion they will get, but only that in the world. That's why in the hereafter, for instance, speaking about charity, uh, in one long hadith related by Imam Muslim, rahmatullahi alayhi in his sahih, from Sayyidina Abu Hurairah radiallahu an, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam says that one of the people called, on, this is part of a longer hadith, one of the people called on the day of judgment will be a rich person on whom Allah bestowed wealth and whom Allah endowed with great riches. So Allah will summon him and the following conversation will take place. Allah will ask him that I bestowed great riches on you. I granted you a lot of wealth. What did you do with the wealth that I gave you as my gift? So the rich person will reply, Oh Allah, I spent your wealth In your cause, I gave in charity, I did this. And then he will enlist all the good deeds that he performed with that wealth that Allah had bestowed on him. He will be asked, why did you do this? And his reply will be that, oh Allah, I did this solely for your pleasure. Then he will be given the reply, no. You lie. You did this. Not for my pleasure. Not exclusively and sincerely and solely for the sake of Allah. Rather you did this so that people could comment on your generosity. So that you would be called generous. Noble. So that you may earn fame. And gain a name for yourself. Well, the reward that you sought, you've already received in the world. Indeed, people did say, you were generous. You were charitable. You did gain fame. You did make a name for yourself. So the reward that you sought has already been given to you. And then the words of the hadith are, then he will be dragged to the fire of Jannah. So this is someone who spent great wealth. But I, I mention this hadith as a kind of commentary of that word that the Prophet ﷺ said, And indeed a man will only get what he has intended. A person will only get what he or she has intended. What a person seeks, that is exactly what they will get. If a person seeks fame, person person wishes to make a name for themselves, if a person seeks showmanship, then this is exactly what they will get. But they will get no reward, no share of any reward in the Akhirah. So the Prophet ﷺ says, Indeed, deeds are only by intention, and indeed a man will only get or have what he has intended. And then the Prophet ﷺ said, 
So whoever's hijrah is to Allah and His Messenger, then indeed his hijrah is to Allah and His Messenger. Now, before I continue with the with any explanation about the hadith and sincerity of intention, just a reminder about the hijrah. Why did the Prophet ﷺ, of all the deeds in religion, speak specifically about hijrah here? The reason is that for the first eight years of Islam in Medina, for the first eight years after the hijrah, the greatest deed in Islam was hijrah. Because it meant a great deal. And in fact, uh, not so much towards the end, but especially in the early years, when the Muslims weren't even given permission by Allah to defend themselves. Prior to that, in the beginning years of the Prophet ﷺ's life in Medina, and then still, in a sense, all the way till the hijrah, Sorry, till the conquest of Mecca, till the eighth year of Hijrah. Hijrah was the greatest deed in religion. Nothing was comparable. Because it meant so much. It was symbolic. If you recall everything I've explained about the states of Mecca and Medina, and their running war, and all the events that took place leading up to the conquest of Mecca. And how the Prophet ﷺ himself emigrated from Mecca to Medina. And how the Sahaba ﷺ faced persecution. And they also sought to escape from the city of Mecca. If you recall all of that, we will remember, we will understand that Hijrah was no easy deed. I mentioned recently in the talk of Hijrah that travelling, even with the knowledge that a person is going to return to one's home, one's children, one's loved ones, one's family, one's hometown, one's own roof, despite all of this, travelling can be torturous. It's not easy. Then imagine... The mental strain, the resolve and determination required, and the anxiety and the anguish that would be coupled with any intention of emigrating and leaving one's home, family, and birthplace or hometown forever. Imagine the uncertainty, the dangers, the fear. And that's exactly what the companions felt in Mecca. If you recall, the very first hijrah, the very first emigration that took place, a few years even before the emigration to Medina, was the hijrah to Abyssinia. And the first Muslims all sneaked out, they slipped out secretly. And when the Quraysh discovered that they had left secretly, they pursued them. But they managed to escape and catch uh, across the Red Sea into Abyssinia. And even then the Quraysh did not rest. They sent their ambassadors to the royal court of Abyssinia to haul back these emigrants. 
because it was hugely symbolic. Similarly, when the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims emigrated to Medina, part of the discussion of the Quraysh was that they didn't want to allow the Prophet ﷺ to leave the city. And therefore, they were seeking to imprison him, ultimately, or their best option on which they finally decided was to kill him. But to prevent him from leaving Mecca and taking up residence in Medina. Many of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, when they traveled, they were caught. Look at Umm Salama radiallahu anha, Allahu Akbar. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa own wife. I never related any of the incidents of individual companions who did hijrah. But the way the companions emigrated, look at the example of Umm Salama radiallahu anha. Umm Salama radiallahu anha, her husband was Abu Salama. And she only married the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam sometime after the hijrah in Medina. But when she emigrated, the Quraysh caught up with her. And they separated her, her child and her husband. Umm Salama radiallahu anha remained without her husband, and even without her child. For a long time, they prevented her from doing the hijrah. And only later, through the intervention of a family member and clan members, did they ultimately take pity on her condition and allow her to carry on to Medina. So many people were prevented from emigrating. Suhaib al-Rumi radiallahu an, famously known as Suhaib the Roman, he wasn't actually Roman, but he was an Arab. Suhaib al-Rumi radiyallahu was actually an Arab. But in childhood, he was taken captive by the uh, Byzantine Romans. And he grew up in the Byzantine culture, in that culture, learning their, speaking their language. But ethnically, he wasn't uh, a Roman or Greek, he was actually uh, an Arab. So Suhaib al-Rumi, but he, since he was, uh, he spoke the language, he grew up in that culture, and he, he was taken captive in childhood, and he grew up, uh, in a way, culturally, as a Roman. He, he was called Suhaib al-Rumi, but he was actually an Arab. So Suhaib al-Rumi, radiyallahu in Mecca, he eventually became wealthy in his own right, and he decided to emigrate. And when he wished to emigrate, again, they sought to prevent him, even though he was emigrating alone. And they pursued him, they threatened to kill him, and he told them, it's a long story, I don't wish to go into the details, but he told them that, I will fight every one of you till death. And he took out his quiver of arrows and placed them next to him, and he said, you will not reach me until my quiver of arrows expires. And then he said, let me do a deal with you. You know that I have wealth. So if I tell you where my wealth is located and secretly hidden, will you be content to take my wealth and leave me be and let me go? So they agreed. So he told them the location of his wealth and they let him carry on. He lost everything. 
everything. And despite being wealthy, relatively wealthy, he left behind everything and arrived in Medina penniless. But Allah had already informed the Prophet And the Prophet when he arrived, he actually greeted him and the first words he said to him were Safqatun Rabiha, the O Suhaib, this was a profitable deal. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the verse of the Quran that there are those amongst the people who sell their souls seeking the pleasure of Allah. And that was uh, Sahib al-Rumi radiyallahu anhu. But there are countless stories of individual companions, men and women, who through great hardship and despite great suffering, they traveled from Mecca to Medina to fulfill the hijrah. The hijrah was the greatest deed then. And this is why the muhajirun, the emigrants, enjoyed such a privileged position. Because it was hugely symbolic. To travel from Mecca to Medina meant that a person publicly renounced their birthright, their birthplace, their hometown, their family members, their wealth, their whole past and history. And they left behind everything traveling to Medina and devoting themselves to Allah and His Messenger it was hugely symbolic and it meant a great deal and this is why Allah and His Messenger both honored every one of the emigrants and in the Quran Allah repeatedly refers to them as the Muhajirun and the Prophet gave them a privileged position and a privileged status. As I told you, in prayer they would stand immediately behind him, the senior muhajir companions. In the gatherings, the Prophet had actually reserved certain places for the senior muhajir companions, and he would, he would seat them there. So the Sahaba were divided into two groups, Nominally, as the emigrants, the muhajirun, and the helpers, the Ansar companions. And despite everything that the Ansar did, all the virtues that they possessed, despite all the great deeds, despite all the sacrifices they made, they were always considered secondary to the muhajirun companions. That was a position of hijrah. That was a deed of hijrah. So in this context, the Prophet ﷺ says that even a deed as great as hijrah, despite the apparent sacrifice, despite everything, has to be sincere and exclusive only for the sake of Allah. This is why the Prophet ﷺ was commanded by Allah in the Quran in Surah Al-Mumtahina. Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu idha jaakum al-mu'minat muhajirat famtihinuhun famtihinuhun Allahu a'lamu bi imanihim fa in alimtumuhunna mu'minat Allah says O believers when the emigrant women come to you when the believing women come to you as emigrants as emigrating women famtahinuhun then test them Subhanallah imagine we are talking about 
those dangerous early years immediately after the hijrah of the Prophet ﷺ. Despite all the hostility, the persecution, the threat to one's life, the possibility of the Quraysh pursuing, capturing, and then endlessly torturing a person in Mecca, especially after capture. Because if the Quraysh captured someone as they were leaving the city, or not just in the vicinity of the city, but even many, many miles or scores of miles into the desert, the Quraysh would pursue them. If they captured them and brought them back, the whole of Mecca would know that this person has committed the grave, unforgivable, inexcusable crime of hijrah. Hijrah was hugely symbolic because it meant that the person was betraying, was committing the treason, the greatest act of treason, and betraying their home city-state of Mecca, and emigrating and declaring their loyalty to the enemy city-state of Medina. It was hugely symbolic. It didn't just mean travelling from A to B. It meant high treason. And if anyone was caught committing high treason, and emigrating from Mecca to Medina, and the Quraysh pursued them and caught them, if one, once they brought them back as captives, even their relatives and their powerful, strong clan members would be unable to defend them after this treason. So it was a huge risk. And yet, in those times, there were some women who braved the dangers, and individually, without any companions, without any men, some individually, some in groups, but only women with no men, they actually fled the city of Mecca with faith, with belief, with belief, leaving behind their possessions, their families, their home city, their birthplace. Only women, and crossing the whole desert between Mecca and Medina, and making this approximate eight-day journey in secrecy with a great threat to their lives. Imagine. And having arrived in Medina, what does Allah say to them, to the believers? That once these believing women make this treacherous journey all the way from Mecca to Medina, having abandoned their families, renounced their loyalty to Mecca, having left behind everything, and now arrived in Medina, what do you, sh- what do, you do, O believers? The first thing Allah says to them is, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا إِذَا جَاءَكُمُ الْمُؤْمِنَاتُ مُهَاجِرَاتُ O believers, when the believing women come to you as emigrants, what do you do? فَمْتَحِنُوهُمْ Test them. That's the first thing you do. Test them. Test them for what? The, be- the others wouldn't do it, the Prophet would do it. And Abdullah ibn Abbas was questioned about this, the cousin brother of the Prophet that what does the Qur'an mean when it says, that test them. So Abdullah ibn Abbas said, the Prophet would test the believing women who had emigrated from Mecca to Medina, he would interrogate them and ask them the following questions. Have you emigrated for any trade? Have you emigrated for any family? Have you emigrated for worldly reasons? Have you emigrated for marriage? 
Have you emigrated for any other reason except for Allah? And in one word, in one narration of the uh, of the reports from Abdullah ibn Abbas, he used to say to them, "Have you emigrated for no other reason than the love of Allah and His Messenger, sallallahu alaihi wasallam?" So the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam would actually test them. Imagine a deed as great and as apparently symbolic and showing as, lo- as great loyalty as the Hijrah did. Despite that, Allah and His Messenger ﷺ would test the believing women for the sincerity of their intention when it came to the Hijrah. And so, the Prophet ﷺ continues in this hadith, he says, Deeds are only by intention, and a person will only have what they intended. So whoever's hijrah, whoever's emigration is to Allah and his messenger, then indeed his emigration is to Allah and his messenger. And whoever's emigration is to the world, i.e. for worldly reasons, for anything, it could be trade, or for any other worldly reason, or whoever's emigration, whoever's hijrah is for a woman that he wishes to marry, and vice versa, any woman who emigrates in order to, in order from, only for marriage, then فَهِجْرَتُهُ إِلَى مَا هَاجْرَ إِلَيْهِ Then his hijrah is indeed only to that which he has done hijrah to. So if it's for marriage, then it's for marriage. If it's for dunya and wealth, then it's for dunya and wealth. They will enjoy no reward of the hijrah. So when we speak about sincerity of intention and this famous hadith about the hijrah, it's not exclusive to the hijrah. It's, it's not only to do with the hijrah. The hijrah serves as the greatest example of the obligation of sincerity in one's intention. That if, for those first few years, something as great, as symbolic, as difficult as hijrah required such purity and sincerity of motive and intention, then imagine all the other lesser forms of ibadah than the hijrah. So much so, that the Prophet ﷺ, after the conquest of Mecca, said, La hijrata ba'd al-fatih. There is no hijrah after the conquest. Meaning, of course, hijrah in its minor form will continue. People throughout the world, for, for generations to come, will continue to emigrate for religious reasons. They will move from A to B. And that's known as a minor form of hijrah. But the hijrah, the great hijrah, the great emigration from Mecca to Medina, to Allah and His Messenger, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, that possibility came to an end with the conquest of Mecca. After the conquest of Mecca, no one would ever be able to attain that supreme reward of hijrah from Mecca to Medina after the conquest of Mecca. Even though the Prophet ﷺ was still alive. So if after the eighth year, someone did hijrah from Mecca to Medina uh, in the ninth year, or in the later part of the eighth year, or even the tenth year, or the beginning part of the 11th year in which the Prophet ﷺ passed away. Despite doing hijrah from Mecca to Medina during the Prophet ﷺ's life and to the Messenger ﷺ, fulfilling all the other conditions, despite all of that, their hijrah would not be considered the hijrah which Allah speaks of in the Quran and which the Prophet ﷺ speaks of in the hadith. Imagine.
that hijrah came to an end. So a deed as great as hijrah in those earlier years of Islam, before the conquest of Mecca, even that required purity of motive and sincerity of intention to this degree. Without sincerity of intention, a person's deeds, be they prayer, charity, pilgrimage, even even hijrah, will come to nothing. And insincerity of intention, polluting and contaminating one's purity of motive, is regarded with such severity in Islam that a reward is not actually distributed based on percentage. Which means that if a person is 50% sincere, they will gain 50% of the reward. In a hadith related by Imam Muslim rahmatullahi alayhi in his sahih, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, Ana aghna shurakai an shirk. Man amila amalan ashraka fihi ma'i ghayri taraktuhu wa shirka. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, I am the most independent and the least of need of all the partners. So whoever performs a deed, does a work in which he has made others partners with me, then I abandon him and his idolatry and his association. So what the hadith says, the Prophet ﷺ quotes this hadith, it's a hadith Qudsi, it's a hadith which he reports from Allah, that Allah says, that of all the partners in idolatry, or all the partners in a partnership, I'm the one of least interest, least need, and I'm the most independent. Which means that if a person performs any deed, Let's say a prayer. He performs a prayer. And in that prayer, his intention is not exclusively for the sake of Allah. But it's contaminated, even partially, even minutely, by other considerations. Such as showmanship, display. Then what he has done, if he's praying in order to show people. And that's, of course it's possible. Allah says in the Qur'an. Speaking of the hypocrites, وَإِذَا قَامُوا إِلَى الصَّلَاةِ قَامُوا كُسَالًا يُرَاؤُنَ النَّاسِ وَلَا يَذْكُرُونَ اللَّهِ إِلَّا قَلِيلًا That when they rise to prayer, they rise lazily, indolently, merely يُرَاؤُنَ النَّاسِ merely showing the people and not remembering Allah except very little. So they do rise to prayer, they do pray, and they do remember Allah though very little, and only apparently. But Allah says, nas, showing the people, making a display for the people. In another verse of the Qur'an, فَوَيْلٌ لِلْمُصَلِّينَ الَّذِينَ هُمْ عَنْ صَلَاتِهِمْ سَاهُونَ الَّذِينَ هُمْ يُرَاؤُونَ Woe be unto those who pray. So here, the woe is mentioned not for those who don't pray, but woe be unto those who do pray. But who are neglectful and heedless of their prayer, those who merely make a display, showing the people. So, even when it comes to salah, it's very easy to allow other considerations to pollute one's sincerity of intention and purity of motive. 
And the ulama explain that if a person, a person only attains sincerity of intention, when their prayer, their salah, becomes equal and exactly the same, whether they are praying in a congregation or individually, in clear daylight or in the darkness of the night, in full view of other people or in the view of no one. One alim explained it rather graphically in the following words. He said, one of the scholars of the earlier generations, that your prayer will not be sincere and will not be pure until your prayer sees no difference regardless of whether you are praying next to a man or a goat. Now it may be rather crude, but it's graphic in the sense of what he's explaining. So if a person standing next to you, does that consideration that he or she is standing next to you in prayer affect your prayer in any way? Does it raise your head? Does it lower your head even slightly? Does it make you apparently more humble? Does it elongate your prayer even by a few seconds? Does it affect any of your movements or your postures in prayer? If it does, your prayer isn't sincere. And if a person isn't praying next to an animal like a goat or a sheep, then it has no effect, no effect whatsoever. Now, before I continue, some of you may wonder why I mention the example of a goat and she- of goats or sheep. Truth is, the Prophet sallallahu actually uh, says that uh, because they, remember they lived in a rural environment and they had animals around them, so the Prophet sallallahu t- discouraged them from praying n- next to or near although it's still permissible, but he discouraged the companions from praying near or next to camels. And he actually encouraged them to pray, if they were already there, near and next to and in the vicinity, and even in the pens of and enclosures of goats and sheep. And I've explained this in great detail before, the effects of company, that um, he, the Prophet wasallam, says that arrogance and pride are to be found in camel herders. And tranquility, serenity, composure and calmness are to be found in shepherds of goats and sheep. And that's a fact. A person is affected by one, uh, the atmosphere, the environment, and one's company. Human and even non-human. And people feed off each other as people. And people even feed off the behavior and the attitude of animals. And since camels are very obstinate, very stubborn, hard-headed, difficult to control, easily provoked, easily stirred and rebellious, quick to bolt, and very difficult to control, this hard-headedness, this obduracy, this obstinacy, this stubbornness, this difficult character and attitude actually finds its way to the character and the person and behavior of the camel herders since they spend so much time in their company. They become as loud, as aggressive, as obstinate, stubborn and difficult to deal with as the camels. 
But the air and the aura of calmness, composure, serenity and tranquility exhibited by sheep and goats, meek animals, docile, humble, soft-natured, beautiful to look at, beautiful to be with. This docility, the serenity and tranquility all actually find their way to the shepherds who remain in the company of these animals. And that's why in one hadith Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, مَا مِن نَبِيٍ إِلَّا وَقَدْ رَعَ الْغَنَمْ There has never been a prophet of Allah except that he has herded flocks of sheep. Why? For a number of reasons. This is Allah's wisdom. One, it allows them, just as the Prophet ﷺ did, to go out from the city of Mecca, away from the hustle bustle of city life. His years from childhood, all the way from possibly 10, but definitely from the age of 12, all those years were spent outside the city of Mecca, away from the hustle bustle of the city, away from the youth of the city, away from groups of people. And what would he do? He would herd flocks of sheep all day long, going out early in the morning, returning tired at night, away from the vices of the city. And there, in the open air, in the open deserts, throughout the day, marvelling at and wondering and contemplating the beauty and the profundity of nature, of Allah's creation, in solitude, in that tranquil setting, day after day, month after month, year after year. Undoubtedly, that has an effect. And the Prophet wasallam, along with the other Prophets, were already made pure and beautiful in many ways. But this was an added factor. And imagine, in an authentic hadith, Prophet wasallam says, there has never been any Prophet except that he has herded flocks of sheep. So going back to the topic of salah, it may seem rather a rather crude example at first hearing that it makes no difference whether a person prays. A person's sincerity in salah can be marked and gauged by the fact that is there any difference in his or her prayer if they were praying next to an animal like a goat or sheep or next to a human being. If there is any change, any difference, then they have not attained purity of motive or sincerity of intention. So whether it's salah, I was explaining that there's no concept of ratio, percentage, or proportion in the distribution of reward. If it's less sincere, a person gets 10% of the reward. And if it's entirely sincere, then entire reward, no. Allah says, when a person performs any good deed, let's say prayer, and part of the consideration is showmanship, to show the people, even part of it, To give you an example, one alim explained that for many, many years continuously, I was always fortunate that Allah enabled me and gave me the tawfiq to perform my congregational prayer in the first row with the first takbir along with the imam. For many, many years, I never missed the beginning of the congregational prayer and I never missed the first saf and the first row of prayer. Then one day, after many years, I was delayed. And when I was delayed, I, unfo- I, I caught the prayer. I caught the full prayer. 
But I didn't manage to make it to the first row. And I was standing a few rows behind, in the middle of the congregation. And as I was praying, a thought occurred to me, and that thought was that I wonder what people will say today, that look at him. For so many years, he used to pray in the first row, and today he is praying behind. And as soon as that thought occurred to me, I realized, or I feared, that inna lillah, maybe all of those years I remained insincere in my intention, because now I am worried that people will comment on my failure to pray in the first row today, and I am grieved and hurt by that. My fear, my grievance of people speaking about me that today I have failed to pray in the first row despite doing so for so many years, this makes me wonder and fearful that could it be that for all of those years I did pray not for the sake of Allah, but for the consideration of the people. Imagine, look at the depth of thought, look at the train of thinking, that a thought has occurred to me, that some people may say, today he has failed to pray in the first row. Does that mean that I am fearful of the comments of people? Does that mean that this fear of the comments of people and their judgment of me is what drove me all of those years and it it wasn't prayer for the sake of Allah? This is how ulama would evaluate their niyyah and their intention again and again, repeatedly. So whether it's salah and a person has other considerations in prayer, Allah that means what the person has ultimately done is part of the prayer is for Allah and a part of the prayer is for the people. And therefore the people and Allah have been made partners in this deed. They are the partner beneficiaries in that deed. So Allah is a partner and so are the people because they are also gaining a share of this person's ibadah and this person's salah. If a person gives in charity and even a minute part of the consideration is the recognition and the acknowledgement of the people, their their comment, their, their viewing him or her as being generous, even if part of the intention is the people, then that means a person in giving that charity has made Allah and the people partners in that charity. So Allah is a partner, and he calls himself a partner in this hadith. And he says, Of all the partners in a partnership, I'm the most independent. Meaning, I have no need of that partnership. So whoever, مَنْ عَمِلَ عَمَلًا أَشْرَكَ فِيهِ مَعِي غَيْرِي تَرَكْتُهُ وَشِرْكَ Whoever performs a good, any deed, in which he makes others partners along with me, Allah says, I abandon him and I abandon his association. Which means that that deed, because it's become contaminated and polluted, it is of no good to Allah. And Allah says, I abandon the whole deed. I abandon the person and his whole deed. This is why I said earlier that there is no concept of being rewarded proportionate to one's sincerity. If that sincerity is lacking even partially. And it could be anything. It could be salah. It could be prayer. It could be charity. It could be pilgrimage. It could be seeking knowledge. In fact, in one hadith. And you know, you know, the intention doesn't always have to be fame. 
It could be any consideration. If a person seeks knowledge without the right intention, <coughs> even that seeking knowledge leads a person to doom. Allow me to explain. In a hadith related by Imam Tirmidhi rahmatullahi alayhi in his sunan and by others, from Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu anhu, he says, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, مَنْ طَلَبَ الْعِلْمَ لِيُجَارِيَ بِهِ الْعُلَمَاءُ أَوْ لِيُمَارِيَ بِهِ السُّفَهَاءُ أَوْ يَصْرِفَ بِهِ وُجُوهَ النَّاسِ إِلَيْهِ أَدْخَلَهُ اللَّهُ النَّارِ Whoever seeks knowledge so that he may debate with the ulama, with the scholars. Also that he may, with this knowledge, confound the ignorant and the foolish. Also that he may turn the attention of the people to himself. The words of the hadith are, he may turn the faces of the people to himself. Then, Allah will fling him into the fire. Imagine. The ulama would review their intentions, subhanAllah. One alim says that at times, again, it, it requires some effort on our part to understand the subtlety and the depth of their thinking. Listen to his words. This famous scholar, classical scholar says, at times, I find myself relating the hadith of Umar radiallahu an about the sincerity of intention. So I begin to relate the hadith, إِنَّمَا الْأَعْمَالُ بِالنِّيَّةِ وَإِنَّمَا لِمْرِئٍ مَا نَوَى فَمَنْ كَانَتْ هِجْرَتُهُ إِلَى اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ Till the end. That I begin to relate the hadith that deeds are only by intention and a man has only what he intended and therefore one whose hijrah is to Allah and his messenger till the end. And then he says, whilst I'm relating the hadith to the people, I evaluate my intention and suddenly I fear that I may be insincere in my narrating this hadith. So I abruptly halt and then I begin the hadith again. He begins the hadith again. That was the extent to which they would assess their intention. And there's a lot to say, we don't have time. I'll end with just one aspect of sincerity of intention, which will serve as an example for all the other branches, whether it's prayer, pilgrimage, or knowledge. And before I continue, I said that uh, if a person seeks knowledge with, for the wrong purpose, that, knowledge will, that seeking of knowledge will lead them to doom. And that's clearly mentioned in the hadith. And it's a reliable hadith. That whoever seeks knowledge so that he may debate with the ulama. Which means that if we are seeking for any knowledge, if we read a verse of the Qur'an, search for a verse of the Qur'an, if we read the hadith, search for a particular hadith, if we try to gain any understanding of any verse or hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, or any item of knowledge, or even a single precept, a single mas'ala, a single ruling, we should review our intention. Why am I asking this question? Why am I researching this topic? Why am I searching for this one verse, one hadith, one single ruling? Even if it's a single item, if it is to debate with others, to debate with the ulama, or 
to confound, to astound, to bamboozle the foolish and the ignorant, or to attract attention. If it's for any one of these reasons, just one, let alone all of them, Prophet ﷺ says, Allah Allah will fling him into the fire. And this is a warning to everybody, seekers of knowledge, individuals, and even the ulama. In that long hadith of Sahih Muslim, which I referred to earlier, one of the people was someone who was rich, whom Allah endowed with great wealth. Another person is one whom Allah endowed with the Qur'an and the knowledge of the Qur'an. And Allah will question him that I gave you knowledge, I gave you the Qur'an and its understanding. I endowed you with knowledge. What did you do with it? He will say the same, Oh Allah, I I taught the people, I conveyed your words, I... Uh, guided the people, I taught the people, I shared the uh, words and the knowledge of the Qur'an, uh, and he would be questioned why. He will say the same, oh Allah, I did it only for your sake. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will say to him, no, you did it, you lie, you did it for fame, you did it so that people could comment on your knowledge, on your wisdom. You did it for fame and for attention. So you got what you wanted. You have already enjoyed the reward of fame and attention in the dunya. Today there is no reward for you. He will also be dragged to the fire of Jahannam. Words of the hadith. And that's why the ulama, the classical ulama used to say, ulama themselves are on the edge. They are on a very precarious edge. Because every word they utter has to be gauged for sincerity, and not by others. Others can't judge them. They have to gauge their own sincerity. They have to continuously evaluate their sincerity, their purity of motive. Of all the people, even more than charity, even more than prayer, ulama are on the most dangerous, treacherous, and precarious ground. They are on the cliff edge. Because they, through their words and through their apparent knowledge, gain the most fame. They mark a name for themselves. They gain the most attention. And therefore, their evaluation of their sincerity, the standards and the requirements for the sincerity of an alim, by virtue of their knowledge, the ulama say themselves, they set a higher standard for themselves. And they say, O fraternity of ulama, we share a greater burden and a great, we bear a greater responsibility for sincerity. And especially in light of that hadith. I'll end with one thing. I'll give an example of charity. That's very easy to understand. Charity. And how precarious a position is ours when it comes to being sincere. And sincerity of intention is something that has to be evaluated continuously. It's incorrect and erroneous and misleading to think that if a person has done a good deed and their intention was sincere, before they perform the good deed and at the time of doing the good deed, that that thing is registered, engraved in stone, secure, and that it cannot be changed. And that it won't be affected by anything afterwards. No. Imagine how subtle this is. The sincerity of intention, purity of one's motive, and making exclusive one's deed to Allah for the sake of Allah is something which has to be guarded for the rest of one's life. 
He has to. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya ayyuhal ladhina amanu la tubtilu sadaqatikum bilmanni wal adha. O believers, la tubtilu sadaqatikum bilmanni wal adha. Do not violate, do not destroy, do not render null and void sadaqatikum, your donations, your charities, bilmanni wal adha, through imposition and inconvenience. What does that mean? A person, what does man and other mean? Imposition and hurt or inconvenience, which is, let's say someone, appro- someone approaches another and seeks help. A person gives in charity. A person gives them a thousand pounds. Aids them. This is just a very crude example. The person goes away. This individual was very sincere at the time of giving. Yet once the money has been given, the charity has been rendered. For some reason, later, the donor, when they meet or see or deal with or engage with the recipient of their donation, they remind them of their charity. So they say to them, remember, I, I helped you out, I gave you. This is what's meant by imposition, man. Man means to boast of one's favour to another. In a verse of the Qur'an in Surah Al-Hujarat, the Bedouin came to the Prophet ﷺ and they said to him that, Aslamna, as Amanna, they said, we have believed, O Messenger. So their manner, their attitude, their approach was almost like we are doing you a favour by believing. So we've done you a favour. Regard us us highly, give us some consideration because we've believed in you, we've become your followers, we've accepted your message. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this verse is from Surah Al-Hujarat, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, The Bedouin have said, Amanna. We have believed. Say unto them, O Messenger, you have not believed. Rather say, Aslamna, we have submitted apparently. And faith, Iman, has not yet entered your hearts. Because there's a difference between apparent submission and the true sweetness of faith that permeates one's heart. And then, Again, the Qur'an says, يَمُنُّونَ عَلَيْكَ أَنْ أَسْلَمُوا They boast of their favour to you that they have become Muslim and apparently submitted. Say to them, O Messenger of Allah, do not boast of your favour by having believed or submitted. بَلِ اللَّهُ يَمُنُّ عَلَيْكُمْ أَنْ لِلْإِيمَانِ Rather, Allah boasts of His favour to you that He has guided you to faith. If anyone has a right to boast, it's Allah, no one else. 
So that's the meaning of man, to boast, to impose, to remind someone. So Allah says, O oh, believers, do not destroy, do not render null and void your charities through man, through boasting and imposition. Because that's what a person does, a person imposes oneself. But remember, I gave you. And it's not just about uh, an individual, it could be anything. If a person donates money to any cause, then they cannot use that donation as leverage in any way. The donation is to be exclusive and sincere for the sake of Allah. Donations are not meant to, in Islam, donations are not meant to buy position, power, or to wield influence, or to serve as leverage in any way. In fact, the Qur'an and the Hadith tell us, once you donate, never ever bring up that donation again. Don't ever mention it again. Neither by word, nor by deed, nor by reference. So a person says, um, remember I helped you, I gave you. Remember when you were in need. This is known as man. And other is actually inconvenience, where the person doesn't just verbally remind the person, or non-verbally, and impose themselves in that manner. But other, if this goes further and actually leads to imposition and inconvenience, and hurting the recipient of their donation in any way, then... That's even worse. It's a secondary stage after initial boasting and imposition. Where it actually leads to hurt and inconvenience. Where the person begins to wield leverage. So the, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, O oh, believers, do not destroy your donations through man and other, through imposition and through hurt. Then Allah gives a very beautiful example. The parables of the Qur'an are most profound. People of the desert, the Bedouin of the desert, the traders of Mecca, the farmers of Medina, the tribes of Arabia, people coming into the Arabian Peninsula from the other civilizations, then 14 centuries ago, and we today in our metropolis, all equally can identify with the parables of the Qur'an. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala immediately thereafter says, O believers, do not destroy and render null and void your donations through imposition and through inconvenience. Like one who spends his wealth merely to show the people and who does not really believe in Allah in the final day. So Allah says, there are two groups of people, and they are both the same. Anyone who donates, even if it means that the donation was initially sincere, but later corrupts and violates and renders null and void that initial sincere intention and that donation through man and other, through boasting of one's favor, through imposition and inconvenience and hurt. That's one category. Someone who was sincere, but then later corrupted their donation. Or the other person, the second category is, the one who from the very outset spends merely to show the people and make a, uh, make a show of their donation and charity. So Allah says both of these categories are the same. The first one, Allah says, do not destroy your donations through man and other, through imposition and convenience, like one who spends merely to show the people. 
But in reality, he doesn't believe in, the, in Allah in the final day. Then Allah says, فَمَثَلُهُ كَمَثَلِ صَفْوَانٍ عَلَيْهِ تُرَابٌ فَأَصَابَهُ وَابِلٌ فَتَرَكَهُ صَلْدًا فَأَصَابَهُ وَابِلٌ فَتَرَكَهُ صَلْدًا لَا يَقْدِرُونَ عَلَى شَيْءٍ مِمَّا كَسَبُوا Allah says, then his example is like Safwan, a rock. His example, his parable is like, his similitude is like that of a rock. Alayhi turab. On that, uh, Safwan means a very smooth boulder. It's not jagged. It's not jagged at all. It's not a j- Safwan means a very smooth pebble-like rock or boulder. So a very large pebble. Totally smooth. That's Safwan. On that Safwan, on that smooth rock, is some dust. Now since it's smooth, that dust is rested very precariously on the rock. It's not embedded into the grooves or into the jagged rock in any way. It's a smooth rock. The soil, the dust, rests very precariously. On that smooth rock. Then Allah says, فَأَصَابَهُ وَابِلُ So all of a sudden, a torrent of water, a downpour of rain, falls on the dust of the rock. On the rock. What does it do? Immediately washes it away. فَتَرَكَهُ salda. So it leaves it bare and smooth. That's all Allah says. That's all Allah says. His parable is that of a rock, a smooth rock, on which there is dust, then there is a downpour of rain on it, which leaves the rock bare and smooth. Then Allah says, لا يقدرون على شيء مما كسبوا They will not be able to gain anything of what they have earned. So what does that mean? What's a parable? Allah Akbar. You know what the parable is? The smooth rock is one's book of deeds. The dust on the smooth rock is one's charity. The rain, the downpour of rain, the torrent of water, is one's imposition, hurt, inconvenience, or insincerity in any form. When a person gives in charity, even if it's sincere initially, it's not secure that it will always remain. It has to be forever guarded. That charity is like dust resting precariously on one's book of deeds. Anything, a gust of wind, a downpour of rain, a torrent of water could blow it away or wash it away at any time. One has to forever guard it. That charity is like dust resting on a rock. One has to forever guard it and make sure that nothing happens to it. If even later, many years later, a person's sincere intention becomes corrupted by boastfulness, by any other consideration, by imposition, by hurt, by inconvenience, then these insincere acts serve as a torrent of water or rain that falls on the rock and washes away one's charity from one's book of deeds. فَتَرَكَهُ salda, 
and it leaves it bare and empty. This is the meaning of la yaqdiruna ala shay'in mimma kasabu. They will not be able to gain anything of what they have earned. Look at the parable. So that there is much more. Uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives beautiful examples, especially in Surah Al-Baqarah, regarding charity and what it does. We don't have time to go into any further now, I'll stop here. But this gives us an idea, and like I said, it will serve as an example of the precarious nature of one's good deeds. Be it charity, be it prayer, be it from any other branch and category of religion. One has to be sincere in one's intention, pure in one's motive, from the very beginning, from the very outset, before doing the deed, during the deed, and forever thereafter. And a person has to guard one's intention forever. And that requires a great effort and sacrifice. No boastfulness, no arrogance, no pride, no other consideration. Making no other person or no other thing a partner in one's good deeds. For Allah does not want shirk in anything. Allah does not just refuse to accept idolatry and shirk and partnership and association in prostration or in sacrifice or in prayer or in pilgrimage. Allah refuses to accept association in any deed, meager or major, and even any intention. Allah doesn't want any partnership in in any intention also. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us amongst those who are sincere in their niyat, in their intentions. May Allah grant us sincerity. May Allah make us amongst those who are sincere before the deed, at the outset of the deed, during the deed, and who remain sincere. May Allah protect us from all forms of uh, idolatry and shirk. And remember, shirk, I've told you before we were studying Kitab al-Sharika in Bukhari. And what does sharika mean? It means partnership. You can say sharik, shirk, sharika, or shirka. All the words are synonymous. They all mean the same thing, which means partnership. So shirk, although we translate it as idolatry, originally, the original word of the mean, the original meaning of the word is not idolatry. This is actually a secondary meaning. It's a branch meaning. The original meaning is partnership. Because that's what a person does. And since when a person worships in, in a major way, idols and other gods besides Allah, along with Allah, then what the person is doing is making these other idols, gods and goddesses, partners with Allah in that person's worship and faith. So the grand name given to this, given to this is, in, in Arabic, shirk, which still means partnership. In, in English we say idolatry. But originally the word shirk doesn't mean idolatry or idol worship. It just means partnership and association. And therefore shirk is in all its forms. And uh, the Prophet well, we learn uh, about shirk and riya. Riya has riya, which uh, the word which we've heard time and time again uh, in these verses of the Quran and in the Hadith, means showmanship, ostentation, to do something merely to show the people. That's known as riya. And riya has been termed shirkul khafi. Meaning, stealth shirk, stealth idolatry, the hidden, creeping, secret idolatry. Because when a person is insincere in one's intention, and even does something just to show the people, even partially, 
then what a person does ultimately is make the people an equal partner with Allah in that person's act of worship and ibadah. So may Allah protect us from all forms of shirk. صلى الله وسلم على عبده ورسوله نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين سبحانك اللهم وبحمدك نشهد الله لا إله إلا أنت نستغفرك ونتوب إليك. This lecture was delivered by Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyadhul Haq and has been brought to you by Alkotha Productions. For additional lectures and products, please visit www.akstore.com. We can also be contacted by phone on double zero double four one two one double seven one. Three triple seven, or by email via sales at akstore.com. Produced under license by Alcotha Productions. All rights reserved for Alcotha Productions and the author. Any unauthorized distribution, broadcasting, or public performance of this recording will constitute a violation of copyright.